Today on CityCast DC, it's our first weekly news roundup. I'm here with lead producer Priyanka Tilvey and newsletter writer Kayla Cote-Stemmerman to talk about the week's most compelling stories. Today is Friday, September 1st, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. Hey, Priyanka. Hey. Kayla, hi. Hello. Excited to be here. Happy yeah. Friday morning. Yes. Yeah, this is pretty wild. Uh, I can't believe that we're doing this, this this weekly roundup. We've been gearing up for it for weeks. Uh, indeed. Uh, and uh, it's the end of the first week of CityCast DC being daily. And uh, it feels like a good way to round up the week. Um, so we've been, uh, like you say, we've been planning about this for a while. And these news roundups are going to have a bunch of regular recurring segments. Uh, one of them, one of them is going to be called the bigger picture. And um, today, uh, Priyanka is actually going to talk about it. Uh, we're going to talk about the shooting of Commander's running back Brian Robinson Jr. and why it is a big deal, even if you don't care about football uh, or hang around on H Street Northeast where it happened. Uh, yeah, Priyanka, tell us about this. Yeah, so over the weekend, Commander's rookie running back, Brian Robinson Jr., he was shot in his leg during an armed robbery. So these two teenagers, they were, the, the suspects are expected to be between the ages of 15 and 17, and they tried to rob him. They tried to rob Brian Robinson Jr., and then he ended up like wrestling with them. He ended up tossing away one of the firearms they had, and then they shot him with the other one in the leg. So then he went to the hospital. His coach, Ron Rivera, came and visited him, and, and he's he's now back at home. It's been a few days. But this just kind of puts a spotlight on the crime problem in the city, which it feels like every day now there's been some shooting story in the news. I mean, on Wednesday morning, we saw like three teens were all shot, two of them right outside their school, the Idea Public Charter School. Um, the other teen was in Southeast DC. In the school shooting, it was a 15-year-old suspect who also goes to that school who was arrested for it. And again, in this Brian Robinson Jr. shooting, it was two teens that they're looking for. That's just a lot of kids running around with guns, you know? So like back in the uh, 80s, Everyone made fun of the then DC mayor Marion Barry because he once said something along the lines of like, "If you didn't count the murders, the crime problem in DC is not that bad." <laughs> and what he meant was that actually the city had a terrible murder stats that were largely a function of a drug turf wars, but stats for like armed robbery and rape and you know other violent crimes, other terrible violent crimes were actually not out of line with other American cities. Right now, so much of the conversation I hear is about things like carjacking and you know actual like property crimes uh, against uh, civilians. What do we know about that? And what, what do the cops say about that? Well, I mean, the thing is that gun violence this year is at its highest in DC in 20 years. And then if you look at the stats that MPD is always putting out and updating, um, robberies this year are up 15%. And then carjackings, like the one that was being attempted um, with Brian Robinson Jr., carjackings are up 27%. So, I mean, that's huge. Like, it's it's really on the rise, you know? 
I guess, you know, D.C. does have the highest rate of firearm homicides per 100,000 residents. I mean, next in line is Louisiana. So that doesn't that doesn't speak well for us either. So when you see these articles, uh, you see D.C. compared to like states because we're sort of a city state. In general, the we're always the worst, like worse than Louisiana. Uh, that's not quite fair because uh, the appropriate comparison is to other cities. Uh, all the same, people see the direction stats are going. And at least, you know, in, in my world, I keep bumping into conversations about, you know, did you hear about so-and-so being carjacked or that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, like, I guess, so I don't have a car, but the two of you, you both have cars, right? Yes. Indeed. Biggest mistake of my life. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's very handy. Yeah. But wait, my, my catalytic converter got stolen from the Prius. Oh my gosh! I wait, have a what? Prius too. Nonviolently, just to be clear, no, it's not like I got a stick-up man who wanted a catalytic converter. But yeah, I turned on the car one morning, and it sounded like a lawnmower. Oh no! What is and the I, catalytic converter? What is that? I'm no automotive mechanic, but I know that it is made out of some sort of precious metal that can fetch a lot on the black market if you are uh, interested in these things, and oh. that particularly Priuses, Prii. Uh, have one that is apparently super easy to swipe, and this is like a national epidemic. So I called the garage, and he said, "Oh yeah, you got a Prius, don't you?" Because I had uh, described what happened. So when you read about all these carjackings that are happening, and you know that you have a car, does it make you nervous? Honestly, no. I mean, no. but <laughs> not uh, really. That's good. But you know, my cars are a little bit cruddy, so if I, I don't yeah, think any self-respecting carjacker either. <laughs> it's like if something happens. It happens. But also, I don't think anybody's going to be going after my um, 2005 Prius, you know. I think there's more tempting bait on my street. Again, going back to my, you know, teenagehood and the first years as a reporter in the 80s and 90s, you know, crime was, and murder, was a very big deal. The perception of urban dangerous crime was a major phenomenon in local and national politics. People, the cities were shrinking. It, this was a thing that at the national level particularly gave rise to demagogues, to like very thinly veiled or unveiled uh, racist appeals. And this radical fall in crime that began in the mid-90s really has had a major political impact in the country in sort of taking away a weapon from demagogues. Now that we are back into a situation where there is a perception that urban areas are scary again for the bourgeoisie. I wonder what this is going to do to our city politics. It's an election year. Uh, as best I can tell, and I read pretty closely, nobody has like tried to demagogue this and said, like, vote for me and I'm going to lock everyone up. But that is, uh, that's the kind of thing that's a, you know, a return to that as a possibility now in a way it wouldn't have been 10 years ago when everyone was marveling at how rapidly the violent crime stats had fallen. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, I'm glad to see that that's not happening this year. I guess it helps, for lack of a better word, that a lot of these stories, it feels like, have been more prominently in the news since June. So, like, after the primary. And obviously, in this city-state place that we live, it's the primary that really counts as the election, doesn't it? Yeah, for, yeah. for sure. At the same time, like... It's also weird, though, that this is a thing that has become part of the reality for a lot of people and elected officials or people who are seeking to be elected officials are kind of not talking that much about. Hmm. That's oh, that's so true. You know, I went to the last mayoral debate that happened before the election in June. It was at Georgetown University and all so the three candidates who were there were Robert White, Trayvon White 
and Mayor Bowser. And they were asked a bunch of questions on crime because this was still in the conversation at that point. And uh, it was just, it was so frustrating. All of the answers were so vague. Like it was just a blanket. Yeah, I'm going to be the one that solves the crime problem in this city. But absolutely no details were given. Um, it was just like of all of the questions in the debate, it felt like that was the one that got the most like political speak. And so, yeah, I agree with you, Mike. It doesn't feel like we're hearing comprehensive solutions from city leadership. I wonder if that's because like, you know, politicians want to avoid that conversation of like police or defund police because you have so many people in D.C. who are so strongly against more funding or more resources towards the police. And then you have this rising crime rate and people on the other side of the line who want more resources given to, you know, like law enforcement. And that's a very tricky line to walk, I think, as a politician. And you don't want to maybe scare away a lot of the young liberals of D.C. who might be, you know, your base. I think the primary election results suggested the young liberals of DC were not going to get their way. The mainstream centrist uh, Democrats they disparaged uh, won. Mm, yeah, yeah, but I I do think that you're you're on the money, Kayla, because like when you said that, it reminded me that at that same debate they did ask Mayor Bowser about the fact that she and her campaign platform did have something in there about giving more money to MPD and. They asked her about the criticism of that. And frankly, I couldn't hear her answer because people were booing so loudly. Like, like literally, they drowned her out. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Speaking of elections, should we talk about our next segment, which is called One of Us? One of Us. Uh, Mark Elrich, she's the county executive of Montgomery County, and it appears he will remain the county executive of Montgomery County. He won a tightly contested Democratic primary by an apparent... 32 vote margin over a businessman called David Blair. They each had about 40% of the total. This struck me as like a super interesting race and kind of undercovered. It broke down in a way that's not quite traditional right left. Elrich has always, he's been thought of as kind of a lefty. He's from Tacoma Park. He's been skeptical of developers, of big in favor of, you know, boosting minimum wages, a, a lot of progressive stuff like that. But this question of housing, and, and in, in Montgomery County, like in a lot of the D.C. area, it's insane. Uh, the average price for a detached home in MoCo is $875,000. Supply in 2021 shrunk. That has kind of thrown a wrench into the market because there's uh, a lot of people on the progressive side, people who are often young and who think the fix here is to really expand the amount of housing to build dense communities around public transit that's good for the environment, too, to, to kind of urbanize large chunks of the inner suburbs. And Elrich, uh, who kind of comes from the generation of lefties who view developers as like evil rather than an opportunity, I mean, I'm exaggerating, obviously, he saw this stuff as tax as give, tax giveaways to rich developers and unattractive, and this is just a bunch of housing for millennials and, and that sort of stuff. And that divide, I think it really kind of defines the politics in a lot of the inner suburbs. There was a, a similar tension in Alexandria uh, in the last mayoral election there. And and I think around the country, it sort of defines the struggles of inner suburbs. Like, are we going to sort of acknowledge that we are in a big city and that we have a large population and that people can't just live in like cul de sac 
winding streets and pretend they're in the countryside? Or are we going to keep faith with the people who moved here thinking I want to live in a shady, leafy cul-de-sac? And I didn't sign up for it suddenly to become a, a big city. And that, you know, that tension, I, and I can, I can empathize on, uh, on both sides of it, but that tension is really huge and definitional. And in this case, it, uh, it came to the fore uh, during the election. Um, and obviously, the voters of Montgomery County didn't really um, decide that uh, both of the candidates, like I said, got about 40%. Uh, the other 20% went to a candidate who was more or less in favor of, uh, uh, he was sort of on the side of, of more density, more development too. Um, but it's like, you know, these these places, if you, and you think of like Silver Spring or Arlington or Alexandria or Rockville or Bethesda have really, you know, changed their identities, changed their forms, changed their demographics um, and changed their density. And um, the question is, do you continue? Do you have more of that uh, in a way that protects the environment and, and hopefully takes some of the pressure off ho housing prices? Or do you uh, try to hold firm to like things like the character of the pre-existing neighborhood? Uh, which a lot of people who actually own houses and vote um, also care about. I think it goes beyond the issue in the suburbs as well. I mean, we were talking to Matt Iglesias, the author of Slow Boring, just the other day, and he was talking about how in downtown D.C., you know, developers have the most difficult time getting a hold of these, you know, of land or of areas that they want to develop, you know, these housing, more affordable housing complexes, but they just can't because the neighborhood or community around them basically protests against it. And getting those permits is actually extremely difficult and time consuming. And that is part of the housing problem in DC currently and why, why housing is going through the roof. I mean, here's like this big long-term question that, I, you know, whenever we start talking about which seems like all the all the time, this question of like density and politics and zoning and cities and you know I'm geeky for this stuff, but like as best I can tell, like Manhattan is like maybe the only place in America where living in an apartment is like the perfectly normal bourgeois family mode of residence. It's not to say there's obviously plenty of people across the country who live in apartments, but it's not the, the the basic mode in Washington or even in Chicago or Los Angeles. I think in American culture, a lot of people, when they close their eyes and they imagine, you know, this is what my successful future looks like. But I think they imagine, like, I have a house. The question is, like, can that, like, can the culture change so that, like, people close their eyes, imagine success uh, imagine a you know a life dreams achieved and imagine an apartment with it. The thing is like when you when you talk about New York though, yeah, it might be that the like for for a family the dream can be to live in like a nice two three bedroom apartment, but that's because as a single person you're not living alone if you live in Manhattan. You're living in like a shoebox with three other people. So that's the difference of the scale, right? Like right. if if you're living in a shoebox with three other people then a two or three bedroom apartment with your family Seems sounds like a house. <laughs> right. It's, exactly. It's, it's like basically not. a house. <laughs> it's, wait. So like, but I don't think that's quite right. Cause I think that like, it's, 
the way that, I mean, people people could move, people could do all kinds of things, but they live that way and the apartments can be quite nice and they're you know, the basic six or whatever it's called. But I think that, you know, this goes to Elridge's, his line about this being a bunch of housing for millennials, by which he meant housing for young people, because there's plenty of millennials who are now like, like <laughs> boring and, and he was referring living to apartments, and right? Right. When he was referring to apartments. But that question, I think, still hangs over. It hangs over D.C. as we build a row after row of a, a two-bedroom apartment. Can this become, uh, can this style of development that we are, I think, appropriately going for become default housing for people with families, for people who are not young, for people who don't feel like I'm just, you know, I'm winging it. And I'm talking here about, about people who are rich enough to have a choice. So they're, they're going to say to themselves at some point, well, I could stay here and live just like this, or I could move to Gaithersburg or whatever. Um, so I'm not, you know, obviously there's plenty of people who don't have a choice, but like, is that a thing that can happen in Washington where apartment living becomes the default bougie mode? Right. Well, I we think the dream. default now, right, is like once like the pattern that you often see is you come to D.C. as a bright young thing and you have your <laughs> studio apartment and then, you know, you get older and you get more established and then you move out. You move out of the city. You move to Virginia. You move to Maryland. You want that yard. You want kids. You want a dog. And there's not a lot of space for that in D.C. literally or like Figuratively, you know, it's, it's a city of 30 year of 20 and 30 year olds. You don't often go out and see families in, you know, downtown. Maybe it's the places I go to. But like whenever my parents are in town, I always feel awkward bringing them to my favorite <laughs> places because it's like there's nobody there over 30. And I think that's kind of just the way a lot of the downtown DC is. And is that something that we can change? Like, can we make it more welcoming, I guess, more approachable and more affordable for families, for starting families, for people to want to not move out of the city, to make them want to stay in the city and and grow there rather than having this like goal of getting out. I don't know. Kayla, come hang out with me sometime. I, I have a dog. <laughs> no yard. Uh, kids. And I'm, I'm really boring and old. Well, that's a great so. example. How do you do it? You know, how does it, how does it work? No, I mean, like, look, it when feels Kayla's really normal to me. When parents come to town, she's going to show up at your house, Mike. Yeah, I will. I, I don't know where to bring them. <laughs> I just bring uh, you to the I most won't... expensive places in town. <laughs> oh, well, then, then then, I'll come with them. So Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a good time. <laughs> like, there will be older people here. All right, so moving on to something lighter. Recently, this TikTok was released about what your DC neighborhood says about you. And honestly, I think we all felt personally attacked. Tell us, Kayla, tell us sure. about the stereotypes. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm the, the millennial here. And Mike, I'm impressed that you even know how to say the word TikTok. So very, it's very good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this TikTok goes through stereotypes and generalizations for each DC neighborhood, you know, from Foggy Bottom to Capitol Hill. Here's what your DC neighborhood says about you. You're currently attending a lobbyist training academy and you've spent far too many hours and decades. You're confused how you got here, and frankly, we are too. You're either 19 years old or you're 90 years old. And you we'll, you know, we'll link you to the actual TikTok. Recommend you go watch it. It's a good laugh. But some of our favorites uh, are these. Foggy bottom means that you're training to be a lobbyist and that you spend too much time in decades. If you don't know what decades is, it is a 
very interesting club uh, in DuPont. It's like don't each see a lot floor. Of yeah, each, each floor yeah. is a different decade. And don't really recommend you go there if you're over 25, maybe, because you will feel out of place. Um, Fun fact, I went there for a friend's 30th birthday this year. Oh, okay. 30, but, 30. I'll say 30. But we were definitely, no, we were definitely like the oldest people there, like for sure. <laughs> Priyanka, what yeah. was your favorite? I felt really attacked by the DuPont Circle one because I live in DuPont. And for that one, he said, if you live in DuPont, it's because you can't afford to live in Georgetown. But then he like very quickly made me feel a little bit better because it's followed up by Logan Circle. And the stereotype for Logan Circle is that you can't afford to live in DuPont. (laughs) So I was like, all right, like at least it's somewhere in the middle. (laughs) I can't afford to live Um, in either. So you're good. (laughs) Can I just call... BS on both of those. We have seen, uh, you know, look at Georgetown. You know, stores are abandoning it for 14th Street Corridor. Mm-hmm. Rents, I think, in 14th are higher than Georgetown. The TikTok is pretty funny, but yeah. it's like, this is very much a like white newcomer, uh, doesn't quite get it phenomenon uh, here. It doesn't really deal with a lot of other neighborhoods. And I think even the, the dealing with some of these is not quite statistically validated. Well, I think I think it's just fun, right? Like the point is that it's like the stereotypical newcomer perspective. And like when you're talking about Georgetown, like the apartments there are designed for like the the stereotype for Georgetown was that you're either 19 or 90. And like I feel like everyone I see around Georgetown, like people who live there either live in those like gorgeous houses, which, yes, I can't afford to buy Mm -hmm. um, or right. Exactly. Or they're living in houses with their friends, which I don't want to do. Like, yes, I could afford to do that, but I don't want to do that. I like living alone. What I'm really curious about is what the Columbia Heights one is, because I live in Columbia Heights and there was no stereotype for Columbia Heights. So what do you guys think that stereotype would be? Yeah, a lot I, of really like big ones were left off this list. What do you think about the stereotype for Columbia Heights should be? I don't know. Probably something about like millennials going to farmer's markets or like something about different types of activist yard sign competitions or something Mm. like that. (laughs) I think the farmer's market one is really, really appropriate. Or like, it's like like the whole neighborhood goes together to farmers on one cup of coffee. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, that's all of us, isn't it? Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Yeah. It felt like a lot of the northern, like Cleveland Park, Wildley Park, those were also left off. Even like Adams Morgan wasn't on there, which I thought was weird. Oh, yeah. 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 That seems like a big one. Mm-hmm. Mount Pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. Mike's I feel favorite like this person hasn't gone very far north in D.C. Yeah. Yeah. Where do we think he lives? Or very far <laughs> east. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or very far where people different from him live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he's in Navy Yard. Yeah. That seems right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the the one for Navy Yard, by the way, is you're gentrifying and you do want to talk about it. Whereas the one for Noma is you're gentrifying and you don't want to talk about it, which I thought was a, was a good yeah. laugh. Yeah, it's funny. All right, so that is it for this week with Citycast DC, our first full one ever. I'm lead producer Priyanka Tilve. And I'm newsletter editor Kayla Cody-Stemmerman. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. Thanks for all your support since we went daily on Monday. We have been floored by the positive response and we would love to hear from more of you. 
tweet at us. We're at CityCast underscore DC. And if you haven't subscribed to our newsletter yet, which Kayla rocks every morning, get on that. Sign up is on our website, dc.citycast.fm. And lastly, I hope you have a great weekend. CityCast DC is taking Labor Day off, so we'll be back with you on Tuesday. Bye. Well, um, moving on to something. Okay, oh, go, go. Do you want to introduce it? No, you do it. No, you do it. You're better.